In this weekend episode, three segments from this week's Washington Journal program on C-SPAN. First, a discussion of the legal issues surrounding President Biden's student loan forgiveness plan that was debated before the Supreme Court earlier this week. That discussion with Elizabeth Wydra of the Constitutional Accountability Center and Giancarlo Canaparo of the Heritage Foundation. Then Wall Street Journal national security reporter Warren Strobel discusses his reporting on the origins of the COVID-19 virus. Plus, this week was the first hearing of the new Select Committee on China. Jamil Jaffer, founder and executive director of the National Security Institute at George Mason University, discusses the threats he says is posed by China's Communist Party. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Now, Elizabeth Wydra of the Constitutional Accountability Center and Giancarlo Canaparo of the Heritage Foundation discuss the legal issues as the Supreme Court considers President Biden's student loan forgiveness plan. First of all, Elizabeth, tell us what the the Constitutional Accountability Center is. Yes. So we are a nonprofit public interest law firm here in Washington, D.C., that seeks to make real the progressive promise of the Constitution. Um, We look at the whole Constitution as amended over time by generations of activists and abolitionists that has pushed our country along an arc of progress and made our our country, through these constitutional changes, more inclusive, uh, more equitable, and uh, has made our national charter more just. As we get underway our conversation this morning, we did this earlier in the program, but I want to remind viewers of the of the plan that the president announced last August, which would cancel up to $10,000 in federal student loan debt for those making $125,000 a year or less, or couples 250 in annual income. If you're a Pell recipient, additional $10,000 in debt forgiveness. There will be $43 million, uh, 43 million bars, I should say, and eligible for that debt forgiveness. 20 million of those could have the debt erased entirely. The CBO says Congressional Budget Office saying the program costing about $400 billion over the next three decades. So to both of you, there's more here. John Carlo, I'll ask you first. There's more here at stake than just the legality of the president's plan. There's also the consideration of whether the states, in the first case, have the legal standing to bring the case. Uh, Tell us a little bit more about that and what's your view on the standing of those uh, six states. Sure. So standing is a legal doctrine that arises out of the cases or controversies requirement of Article 3. And what it says is if you want to be able to bring a lawsuit in federal court, you have to have an injury that was caused by the other side that a court can fix. And it has to be a real injury and not a concrete one. So you have a number of injuries alleged here by the states and the individual plaintiff in the uh, second case. And... um, 
I'll, you only need one plaintiff to reach the merits. So I'll focus on each, the lead plaintiff in each case. Um, Nebraska and Missouri, actually Missouri has uh, probably the strongest argument for standing. And what Missouri says is it has suffered harm or will suffer harm for this uh, debt cancellation plan because it operates a state entity called Mohela, which services student loans. So it gets paid money for every student loan uh, that the federal government issues in which it services. And that when Biden cancels student loans, uh, it will suffer the loss of that revenue. Uh, and then the student in this case uh, has probably a weaker argument, uh, and he, he makes the claim that because he was not eligible for student mm-hmm. loan relief. In the second case. In the second yeah. case, right. He suffers a procedural injury, which is that he was not able to participate in the normal rulemaking process. So in, in the standing issue, um, Elizabeth Weidra, the court has shown a very, very to be favorable, both in Republican, Democratic, now Democratic, and Republican administrations, be favorable to the issue of standing. What do you think the court will see when they uh, take on that first case today? Yeah, I think that's going to be a really big issue. And the United States, uh, who will be represented today by the Solicitor General, Elizabeth Prelogger, will make a very um, strong argument that there isn't standing here, that you don't even get to the merits of the case because, um, you know, Mohela, as Giancarlo uh, discussed, isn't isn't an arm of the state. It's an independent corporation. It could sue on its own behalf if it wanted to. And the individuals who are suing uh, want greater debt relief. But if they declare the plan unlawful, there no one will get any relief. So that there isn't a related injury. Um, you know, the court has seen over time this pattern, as you said, both Republican and Democratic administrations, where uh, state attorneys general come to the court seeking to invalidate a plan. Um, there might be the opportunity this time for the court to say, you know, this political plan is something that uh, is constitutional or at least is not going to be challenged by these particular plaintiffs. And then we'll see if there are any other plaintiffs who step up. Technically, the, the, it's not the president for giving the loan. It's the Secretary of Education under the, the HEROES Act. Mm-hmm. Starting with you, Elizabeth, tell us your view of that bill, that act that was passed in 2003, and whether um, it, has, it, it applies here, it can apply here. Yeah, absolutely. So you're exactly right. The um, Congress has passed legislation that gives the Secretary of Education authority and discretion to waive or modify certain uh, repayment obligations or regulations more generally related to federally held student loans. And uh, here, the HEROES Act particularly discusses national emergency. As we all know, COVID-19 has, the COVID-19 pandemic has been a declared national emergency since President Trump first made that declaration. And in response to that, we've seen uh, the Trump administration, Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos, first put a pause on student loan repayments and interest accruals for all federal loan borrowers. That was extended by the Trump administration, extended by the Biden administration. And then in this particular instance, the Secretary of Education decided that they would stop that loan uh, repayment pause and go with a two-pronged approach. They would stop the repayment pause, but then they would have targeted debt relief for lower-income borrowers that they determined, pursuant to the HEROES Act, were more likely to be at risk of delinquency and default on their loan repayments. So the secretary in August 2022 came up with this two-pronged targeted debt relief approach that is 
And we argue in a brief uh, on behalf of one of the co-sponsors and co-authors of the HEROES Act that this is plainly within the statutory text of the HEROES Act. Giancarlo Canaparo, your argument against why, what would you say that why the HEROES Act should not apply in this case? Sure. So a little bit of background context. The HEROES Act was passed shortly after 9-11 and was targeted at, although as is typical, used much broader language than uh, reaching military service members deployed overseas after 9-11 and to give them relief. And as Ms. Weidra says, the operative language is waive and modify, but it's not all of the operative language. Uh, the act is limited only to individuals who have suffered financial harm directly traceable to the underlying emergency, which in this case is the COVID-19 pandemic, and only to the extent necessary to keep them from being made worse off. So really where, where I think Biden is going to be in a lot of trouble at the Supreme Court is not necessarily the waive and modify language, although there is reason to think that that will be that the court will think that that language is at least at best ambiguous, in which case we'll be in what's called the major questions doctrine realm, and I'll get to that in a minute. But this necessary limitation is probably a problem for Biden because he hasn't made any effort to target the debt relief to the people who are actually suffering harm. So his plan will apply, will give debt relief to 95.5% of all borrowers, including people who make uh, incomes in the top 5%. So Elizabeth Weider, is that too broad a target? Well, I, I disagree that they have not uh, taken care to target the debt relief. The Secretary of Education looked at historical and economic data to determine which uh, class of borrowers were more likely to be included in the terms of the HEROES Act of 2003, which is the one we're talking about here, um, uh, the one that was passed after the HEROES Act of 2001. And, um, you know, there they, they looked specifically to see who was more likely to be in uh, delinquency or default on these federally held loan uh, payments. And I think there's really no dispute that if we simply stopped the repayment pause without any type of relief, that people would be in a you know serious financial crisis. Certain classes of borrowers would be. That was Elizabeth Wydra of the Constitutional Accountability Center and Giancarlo Canaparo of the Heritage Foundation. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Next, a discussion on the origins of the COVID-19 virus and new assessments from key cabinet and intelligence agencies. Wall Street Journal national security reporter Warren Strobel joins us now. He's been on the trail of the origins of COVID. Plenty of stories about that in recent days from you and your colleagues at the Wall Street Journal. Uh, here is the latest. FBI director says uh, the COVID pandemic likely caused by Chinese lab leak. This coming from Christopher Ray. What did he say yesterday? So this story was written by my colleague and I, Michael Gordon. We've been working this story really for like three years now. Um, Ray, for the first time, publicly acknowledged that the FBI's position, its assessment, uh, John, is that the uh, pandemic was caused by, a, likely caused by a lab leak. And uh, I thought it was quite interesting that he decided to do that publicly. Up until now, um, 
the U.S. intelligence community, the Biden administration has sort of uh, given the overview of where the uh, intelligence community is, but none of the individual agencies have acknowledged where they are. So he went public um, basically saying, we think this is probably a lab leak. Is it in part because of the story that you published over the weekend about the Energy Department's assessment here on the, the same assessment of it being a lab leak? Yeah, I think there was a direct correlation and perhaps, uh, we don't know this for sure, but maybe a director wanted to get out there and say, hey, we think this too. And actually, we thought this or came this assessment before the Energy Department did. And we have a lot of expertise at the FBI in this area. Uh, callers this week have been bringing up your story uh, that uh, you and your colleague, uh, Michael Gordon, broke this weekend. Uh, why was the Energy Department looking into the lab leak? What, what, uh, why are they doing an assess- separate assessment? I understand the FBI, but why the Energy Department? That's a really good question. And it's something that, looking back, we might have uh, explained, frankly, a little bit um, more completely in our article. But the reason is this, Jerome. The Energy Department back in the 1960s established something called the Z Division, which sounds really sexy and spooky. It's basically out at Lawrence Livermore uh, Laboratory in California. And what they do is they study weapons proliferation programs for foreign countries. When the Russians do a nuclear test, they go and sample the air to find out what kind of nuclear weapons was tested, for example. They do the same with China and Iran, and they, over the years, they've developed uh, a lot of specialties, uh, specialization, not just in nuclear, but in chemical and biological weapons as well. So they do have a lot of expertise out there, and um, so it says, it's kind of crazy uh, for an outsider to say, yeah, why is the Energy Department even commenting on this? But they absolutely, both the FBI and Energy have a fair bit of expertise. How many different agencies are looking into the origins of COVID right now? Uh, um, as we understand at nine. And uh, believe it or not, there are 18 members of the U.S. intelligence community, the latest being the uh, Space Force, which was stood up a couple of years, has its own intelligence unit now. But of those 18, a lot of them don't have expertise, so it's really, um, it's really nine. How many of those nine do we know their conclusions so far? So the, it gets a little complicated here. I'll try to explain it as best I can. Um, the intelligence community as a whole does not have any final conclusions or assessments. I don't think anybody does. Anybody who tells you I know where this came from is, is wrong or is making it up. Um, for, as far as the intelligence community, you have four agencies who kind of lean with low confidence towards this came from nature and infected humans. Um, you have two, FBI and Energy, who uh, lean towards the um, lab leak theory, and then you have two that are undecided. And we don't know all those agencies. We know that one of the undecided ones, and it's an important one, is the CIA. John Kirby, the National Security Council spokesman, making this point that there's not a definitive conclusion yet. This is about 30 seconds from uh, his press conference on Monday. Ahead of uh, where we are in the process, Jackie, uh, the intelligence community and the rest of the government is still looking at this. Um, There's not been a definitive conclusion, so it's difficult for me to say, nor should I feel like I should have to defend uh, press reporting uh, about a possible preliminary indication here. What the president wants is facts. He wants the whole government designed to go get those facts. And that's what we're doing. And we're just not there yet. And when we're there yet, and if we have something that is, is, um, is ready to, to be briefed to the American people and the Congress, then we're going to do that. John Kirby on Monday, Warren Strobel of uh, the Wall Street Journal. What will it take to get the U.S. government there? Do a certain number of these agencies have to agree? Uh, that's a very, very good point. Yeah, I think you have to get a consensus within the intelligence community, which is as I said, 18 agencies, $90 billion, a lot of expertise. Um, but in the original report that the Biden administration, the Office of Director of National Intelligence, issued in October 2021, they said to get to an answer, we're really going to need more answers from China, more cooperation, more information. 
Um, and again, as I said earlier, I don't think um, I don't think anybody, maybe some people in China, but I don't think, broadly speaking, no, we, it's still a mystery, which is why my colleague Michael Gordon and I feel it's important to keep reporting on this. The uh, idea of that they assess this with low confidence, what does that mean? So uh, I wish I had the definitions in front of me, John, but these, there's low confidence, medium confidence, high confidence, and these are very structured um, analytical terms within the intelligence community. Um, they don't just sort of pick them out of a hat. Low confidence means the information is incomplete and not conclusive. But, and we don't, as we say in the article, we don't know what the new intelligence is, but it was enough to push the energy department from saying we don't know to we assess likely, more likely than not, that it was a lab leak. How long have you been looking into the origins of COVID? Uh, three years. Do you have a theory that you're leaning towards most yourself? I am firmly in the agnostic camp. I just, um, I've, I've, I'm not a virologist. I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm a reporter. I've covered complex scientific national security issues in the past, but... Um, I just haven't seen one piece of evidence or another that has sort of makes me say, that's it. On the other hand, um, as I've said a couple times already, there are some people on Capitol Hill and elsewhere who say this was a lab leak. Many scientists who will say, we know for sure it wasn't a lab leak. I just don't think we know. Are there origin stories uh, that uh, can be discarded at this point? Well, the one thing I would say in the, in the sort of follow-up and discussion of about our, our story that broke on Sunday... I don't think enough attention, John, has been given to what we reported that the original October 2021 report by the Director of National Intelligence said we assess, there's a consensus actually among the intelligence agencies, this is not a deliberately engineered biological weapon. And the follow-up report that we wrote about, that's only, it's only about a five-page update, um, that report reaffirms that consensus even more strongly. So not a, not a biological weapon. So what should we draw from this? Um, there, in terms of where the intelligence community is right now and, and, and these threats, they're, they're leaning towards that this was a mistake. Right, an accident. If, if it was an accident, a lab leak, bad biosecurity procedures, shoddy equipment, um, what have you. But um, again, there is chatter on Capitol Hill and elsewhere that this was a deliberately created Chinese biological weapon. And the intelligence community, if they're not, they don't have consensus on anything else, but they have consensus that they do not believe that's the case. That was Wall Street Journal national security reporter Warren Strobel. Next, Jamil Jaffer, founder and executive director of the National Security Institute at George Mason University, discusses this week's inaugural hearing of the House Select Committee on China. Our view on China is that we have to acknowledge the very real threat that the Chinese Communist Party presents to the United States. Uh, It's an economic threat. It's a national security threat. Uh, But to be clear, Pedro, like uh, the bipartisan leaders of the China Select Committee in the House said um, at their hearing uh, a couple of days ago, uh, this is not about the Chinese people. It's not about Chinese Americans. This is about the Chinese Communist Party that, frankly, brutalized its own people, is interned over a million Muslim Uyghurs in re-education camps in the Xinjiang province, right, uh, that threatens uh, Chinese Americans here in the United States and Chinese nationals here in the U.S. with police stations to threaten them uh, and their families back home if they don't toe the Communist Party line. So this is not about China or Chinese people. It's about the Chinese Communist Party and their bad behavior at home and abroad. That chair, uh, Mike Gallagher, described uh, this as an existential struggle. Is that rhetoric or is that reality in your opinion? You know, I think that is the reality, unfortunately. It's not a struggle that we wanted. It's not a struggle that we're calling for. It's a struggle that the president of the United States, President Biden, and his secretary of state have made clear they don't want. They want to see competition with China, right? We, as a nation, want to see competition with China. We don't want conflict. That being said, the Chinese government is flying spy balloons over our country. 
They're, they're threatening Taiwan. Uh, they're conducting all, they're engaged in all sorts of bad behavior around the globe. There's now a potential they may supply Russia with weapons in the Ukraine conflict, as Iran has, already has done. This is a significant problem. And, you know, even though we try to convince the Chinese, look, it's better to collaborate, it's better to work together economically, they continue to threaten American allies and American interests around the globe. So you described just three fronts altogether. What does that mean for the administration that tries to handle not only specifics on those fronts, but the overall relationship that China has with the United States? You know, it's, it's a real challenge, right? I mean, look, part of it is we're going to have to, at some level, disconnect our economy from China. Now, the notion of disconnecting our economy in a large sense is impossible. Right. The reality is that it doesn't matter that much if we buy cheap goods in the form of in the form of clothing and the like from China. What does matter is if we're relying upon China for critical minerals, the kind of things that, that are going to be key to the green energy revolution. Right. Or, or our, our fighter jets and the like or semiconductors that go in every car, every automobile, pharmaceutical precursors for medicines, personal protective equipment, PPE, as American as American people learned during the pandemic that we're so reliant upon China for we have to ensure that that is being made in allied countries, in countries where if China does get in a conflict with another nation, whether that's Taiwan, a partner of ours in the region, right, or with us, that we're not reliant upon the Chinese Communist Party to supply us those goods. You talked about in a recent op-ed that you wrote taking a look at these issues that there were things going on with China well before what the tangible things that we've seen over the last few weeks. Describe what was going on in the background and how it's manifested itself now. And does that change the perspective that people have of China today? You know, Pedro, the, um, the, we, the American people have really woken up, I think, to the challenge of China, with, as we talked about during the pandemic, with the Chinese spy balloon. But for years, for the better part of a decade and a half, China has been stealing billions a year and trillions in total of intellectual property out of the United States, stealing it through physical theft, through cyber hacking and the like, taking that, that know-how, that, that, that ingenuity of Americans uh, that is the engine of our economy and, and turning it into economic prowess and power overseas, right? Companies like Huawei and ZTE, they have, they have very good telecommunications gear, but their early generation of their routers looked just like a Cisco router because it was a Cisco router. They'd essentially stolen the information, built it themselves over there, sold it on the cheap, and then they've innovated on top of that. And so it's become an engine. This theft has become an engine for the Chinese economy. But it's not just intellectual property, right? It's the fact that they have, they have Confucius Institutes or, or educational institutions. Right? They have pressure groups. They have these police stations that we didn't even know about until this year, not just in America, but in countries around the globe. Right? These Chinese spy balloons, we just learned about them. We shot it down over South Carolina. Right? Over 40 nations have seen Chinese spy balloons, we now learned, right, over time. These spy balloons have been floating over the United States since the Trump administration and even during the Biden administration without the White House knowing about it. So these are obviously huge issues right, that we have to deal with as a nation. And the question becomes, how do we ensure that we can have an economic relationship with China, which we're not going to disconnect from completely, but also have them understand that their behavior, both at home and their effort to export the repression they practice at home globally, will not stand uh, in, in, when it comes to our allies and partners. That was Jamil Jaffer, founder and executive director of the National Security Institute at George Mason University. Hear more interviews from C-SPAN's Washington Journal program on our website, cspan.org on the C-SPAN Now app, or on C-SPAN Television, every morning live from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern.